get the legs a little loose from, from singing, get up and just uh, say someone who you didn't say hi to earlier this morning. All right, maybe we can make our way back to our seats. Um, I, uh, I just wanted to uh, start off this morning uh, by saying thank you to those who reached out to me during the week um, for their prayers. Um, work has been rough the last, I'd say, month or so, especially this last week. Um, actually, was worked a little bit yesterday. Um, worked late nights, a couple nights through the week. So thank you for those who reached out and who were praying. I, uh, I appreciate it and I felt it. So as was mentioned, uh, this summer kicks off our summer session at Terra Road Bible Chapel. And it was mentioned that we're going to be go over, going over First and Second Thessalonians uh, through the summer. Specifically, the assignment is to go over and look at Paul's heart toward the Thessalonians. Sometimes we think Paul is very direct um, and maybe sometimes harsh, um, but that's, uh, Paul has a goal, um, and he has a heart, that uh, a loving heart, and we'll see that here this morning. And as we'll see this morning up here, um, one of the things that Paul does, and we'll look at as an encouragement, is leading by example. So we're going to see Paul leading by example uh, in love. So naturally, we're going to start with 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, the first thing we're going to do is look through some background. Why did Paul write the letter? Uh, when was the letter written? Uh, what events led up to the letter? Second, we're going to look at three points that I picked that show and display Paul's heart towards them. This list isn't all-inclusive by any means. I'm sure you'll come up with your own. I encourage you to think about these as we're going through. And last, we're going to look at a model or two analogies that Paul uses when describing his relationship with the Thessalonians. So Thessalonians was written about 51 AD. Um, it actually is the first letter or the epistle that we have in our Bible that Paul wrote. I'm sure most of you know that they're not chronological in order, so Thessalonians most likely is the first one that he wrote. And Paul writes on his second missionary journey. Um, Paul visited the Thessalonians uh, on that same missionary journey. It was a little while later that he wrote the letter. And so I figure we have some fun this morning, um, and we're going to go back in time to around 49 AD. So I built the time machine, and I have a time machine, okay? And um, so we're going to w join me in my time machine. Hey, Mr. Smith. Oh, here we go. Hey, Mr. Smith. Want to try out my time machine? It runs on Doritos. Sure. So now what? Gotta put the whole bag in. Okay. Yes. It's really working, Jimmy. This is the greatest moment of my life. Get out of my yard! 
Jimmy? You're so old. It's the future! <laughs> so, now that I convinced all of you I have a time machine and it's 49 AD, um, don't pay attention too much that we went to the future and I'm telling you we went back in time. Um, any movie you watch, um, there's always flaws in time travel. So, um, but for the sake of this morning, uh, we're back in 49 AD looking at Paul's second missionary journey. We're just going to talk about a few stops which are relevant to us this morning. Um, you see to the east um, where the star is in Antioch. That's where Paul and Silas begin their missionary journey. Um, this map includes, Paul, before he leaves, Paul's trip down to Jerusalem to meet with the elders. Um, so all the way to the east in Antioch, where the stars is where Paul and Silas start out. And then going counterclockwise, they make their way to Lystra, which is about a little bit due west of Antioch, around the little nook of water. And in Lystra, Paul meets a young man named Timothy, and Timothy had a good rapport, okay? It said that the people thought very highly of Timothy, and that Paul and Silas thought the same because Paul and Silas bring Timothy on their missionary journey with them. So this is where Timothy joins them. Next, going all the way west as far as you can to the northwest uh, corner, you see, if you can see that clearly, Philippi, right, over in Macedonia. So I'm sure all you remember the story in Philippi, where Silas and Paul are beaten and thrown in prison. While they're in prison, they rejoice, singing praises and pray. And there's an earthquake that happens, and the jailer gets saved, and eventually Paul and Silas are re released. And so we're thinking about the idea and the concept this morning of Paul's love and leaning by example. We all know the verse, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kind, kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And this example, Paul follows. Paul leads by example. In fact, he doesn't realize the repercussions, the positive repercussions of this example that are going to um, play out uh, through our story this morning. So then from there, we're going to go down to uh, Thessalonica, which we're going to spend most of our time. Um, the text wouldn't fit, so you see the black little arrow that's just east of, of Berea. And so our story that we have in these maps of Paul's second missionary journey, Luke writes an account of this in Acts. And the journey starts roughly in Acts chapter 15 and goes to 18, is about the whole, the whole journey. I encourage you to read that, uh, maybe later through this, this week. Um, see some insight yourselves to get the exact, exact details as we go through. But in Thessalonians chapter uh, 17, or I'm sorry, um, Acts chapter 17, we see that Paul is in Thessalonica. And so while Paul is in Thessalonica, the first thing he does, which is typical uh, Paul fashion, is he goes into the synagogue and he starts preaching. And his message is very clear. His message is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that he suffered and he had to die and he rose again. This is Paul's message to the Jews in the synagogue. And the scripture tells us that he spoke for three Sabbaths in the synagogue. This doesn't mean that he only spent two or three weeks there. Most scholars believe that he spent two to three months um, there with the Thessalonians. So what did Paul do with the rest of his time there? Well, again, Paul had a good pattern of going into the synagogues to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles in the marketplace. And that's what we believe took place and what he was doing for the, his other time. In fact, in Acts uh, 17, verse 4, it gives us an insight to this. It says, 
some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks, or Gentiles, and quite a few prominent women. So as Paul preached this gospel, the Holy Spirit touched their hearts, they heard the word of God, and responded. So when Paul writes this letter, these are the, the believers at Thessalonica. These are the people who made up the church at Thessalonica. Now by the time Paul writes the letter, it's probably expanded a bit, and the church has grown. But at the time when they're there and Paul's preaching, just like in Jesus' time with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and we see early in Acts when the church is being developed, there was opposition, opposition to the gospel. And here at Thessalonica was the same. The Jewish leaders um, started to go around finding wicked men. So picture this. The Jewish religious leaders are going around looking for wicked men and evil men to help them, and they start a riot um, to persecute Paul and the others. This wasn't a quiet riot, uh, no pun intended. It wasn't a peaceful protest, okay, where they came and they took Paul and Silas and Timothy and said, let's sit down, let's go over the scriptures, let's discuss these things. I want to know the truth. No, no, they actually were angry and they attacked a man named uh, Jason's house looking for Paul. And it says that the Jewish leaders were jealous of Paul, specifically jealous of Paul, and that he was accused of turning the world upside down. Well, in fact, he kind of was turning the world upside down. We remember Jesus this morning and how he suffered and he took our place on the cross, that his blood covered our sins. We no longer need to sacrifice animals. So this is true. They, they were turning the world upside down by preach, preaching the gospel. But this isn't really what the Jewish leaders meant. Maybe we could have phrased it better and said that the Jewish leaders meant you're turning our world upside down. Remember, they were jealous of Paul. Why would they be turning their world upside down? Well, Paul was, in fact, stealing their thunder. They didn't really care much about what was right and wrong, about preaching, preaching uh, about God. They cared about using the scriptures for their own personal gain, for power, money, authority. And to be honest, Paul was just ruining this. Just like Jesus ruined it earlier on, Paul was just ruining this. And I do believe that if they weren't so self-centered and selfish, thinking of their own um, desires, that when they heard the words that Paul were speaking, was speaking, that they would have accepted this as truth. But their hearts were hardened. In fact, if anyone, the Jewish leaders had the evidence of the Old Testament that they, when Paul spoke and was proving that Jesus was Messiah, they should have known, but they didn't. Paul probably quoted scriptures like Isaiah 53, saying that he must have suffered and died for our sins. But nothing was going to change their mind, and Paul had to go. And so we see that um, these Jewish leaders, and I missed actually a slide here. So this is someone's uh, renditioning of Paul preaching in the synagogue. And we have some of the Jewish leaders starting, uh, starting a riot. And some others as they grab, see if this works, as they grab Jason and they take him to the authorities. And for whatever reason, this, uh, this artist thinks that wicked men are missing teeth. I don't think every uh, person who's missing a tooth or so is a wicked person. But as they go and they grab Jason, they bring him to the authorities. Um, they went to Jason's house most likely because he was a new believer. Um, that's where Paul was staying. They probably knew Paul was there. But they couldn't find Paul, maybe more realistically, as Jason and the others wouldn't tell them where Paul was. 
And so Jason and the others are willing to take the blame for Paul. For the sake of the gospel, they're willing to go before the authorities, not knowing what might happen to them. Maybe they'd be beaten like Paul was. Maybe they'd be thrown in prison, killed. See, when we stand up for something that's a greater cause than we are, we put ourselves out there. And sometimes we don't know what might happen to us. In fact, I think in our culture nowadays, we lose some of this context. Um, we don't really understand what it means to, be, to have self-sacrifice for others. Um, I think maybe because we see too many movies. Uh, maybe if you're a DC fan, um, you've seen Superman vs. Batman. Superman dies, spoiler alert. But it's not real, right? Superman will come back to life. If you're a Marvel fan... Um, spoiler alert, the, some of the Avengers die. But again, it's not real. It's a movie, and they'll most likely come back to life. But what about the missionaries who are in missionary handbook who are in special areas because every day their lives at risk? We don't know what that's like in our culture. People who go off to war not knowing if they'll come back. We kind of, we, I don't even know if we even really appreciate appreciate it. So I point this out because Steve and the others were godly, they were noble, they were honorable, and building on this, they led by Paul's example. Paul put himself out there. He was beaten and put in prison in Philippi, and they were fully aware of the Thessalonians that this has happened. Paul puts it in his letter. He doesn't tell them in his letter that this happened. He references in this letter. So they were aware before Paul, Paul wrote the letter what took place. So immediately after um, Jason and Paul are brought to the authorities, they're made to give uh, some money, a security, maybe a bond. Um, So all they had to do was pay some money and they were released. But at the time, they didn't know. They didn't know what was going to happen to them. So once they get back that evening, they realize there's so much turmoil that they take Paul and Timothy and Silas, and they now go down to, to Berea. This will work. So now they go down just west to Berea. And so Paul does the same thing that he normally does. He goes to the synagogue and he starts preaching again. And the Berean Jews, as I'm sure you know, were more receptive. Except the Thessalonian Jewish leaders weren't done. When they heard that Paul was down in Berea, they went down and started the same riots and started persecuting them as well. Could you imagine if every time we met here, that the gospel was preached, there was a riot outside of angry men who wanted us to stop. This is what the Thessalonians were living with. This is the type of persecution that they they were going through. And so this is where I start to uh, see Paul's heart and fondness for the Thessalonians. So because of the turmoil, they take Paul, they tell Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and they go to the coast. As you'll see, they go off to the coast, And at this point, Paul has to make a decision. Is he just going to abandon the believers in Thessalonica? Um, Is he going to just start thinking of himself? See, in times of trouble, most of the time we end up starting thinking about what do I need, what's best for me, and that's what we focus on. Even though Paul needs to continue his missionary journey, he decides to leave Timothy and Silas behind. This is one of our, our points. Paul considers the needs of others more than the needs of himself. Paul could have easily made the argument that he's been beaten, he's been thrown in prison, 
He's been on a long journey that he needs Timothy and Silas with him for encouragement. But he leaves him behind. Timothy, we know, goes to Thessalonica. Silas most likely goes uh, to Berea and some of the surrounding areas. So he makes a hard decision, similar to what a mother would do for her kids. Maybe uh, you put dinner out and you realize that there's not enough food. Times are tough. And so does the mother eat all the food and say, well, the children, you'll, uh, sorry, you'll have to deal? No, that's not what a mother does. A mother makes sure her children are fully fed. They, she knows they need to grow. So she makes sure that they have the food and she makes a sacrifice. If the children are cold, does she not take her coat off and wrap them in it to make sure her children are met? See, I want to encourage us in our times of trouble, and we think of ourselves and what we need, okay, to think of others as well. There may be others who are suffering more than you, and maybe they're not suffering more than you, but maybe the idea is not to always just focus on ourselves. The other reason I think Paul leaves Timothy behind is Paul's eager to know how they're doing spiritually. He wants a report. He wants to hear how they're doing in his absence. So eventually, Paul makes his way down to Corinth. Let's go back here. Paul makes his way down to Corinth. He, after he leaves, he goes to Athens first and then goes to Corinth. And in Corinth is where Silas and Timothy rejoin him. And we have a summary of Timothy's uh, report to Paul in 1 Thessalonians 3.6. And it says, But Timothy has just now come to us from you and brought good news about your faith and love. And he has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we long to see you. And it's in this response, okay, that Paul writes the letter to the Thessalonians. Let's see what we're on here. And so this is my point two. Paul writes the letter in a timely fashion. He makes them a priority because they're on his mind. He's praying for them. He cares about them. He loves them. Paul doesn't wait to the end of the missionary trip and say, you know what, I'm too busy with the things going on in my life. I have other things to do. No, he takes time, he stops, and he writes them a letter to encourage them. He doesn't wait till they, he hears that they stumble and fell. Yeah, in the letter, there's, we'll see as the weeks go on, there's a few things Paul addressed, okay? But mostly, Timothy's report was encouraging, and he still writes the letter. He doesn't wait to say, well, now that I know you're struggling, now I'll reach out to you. He encourages them as they're doing well to build them up. So in our lives, in our busy lives, we all have work. I'm sure we have family members to take care of. How often do we reach out to others, not just when they're sick um, or struggling, but to encourage them to fight the good fight? Do we take the time and pause and reach out to them? It's a lot easier for us nowadays, too. We can text, tweet, Facebook, email. Too many times we, uh, we use these resources just to, I don't know, text what you ate. Um, maybe if you have an issue with someone, you need to set it right and set it straight. You're going to let them know how it is. Let's use these resources to encourage one another. I don't think we realize how important it is to reach out and encourage someone, especially when they're doing well, especially when they're serving in a positive way. Paul writes the letter to encourage them spiritually. He's not worried about tweeting out what he ate that night. I understand Paul didn't have Twitter. I get it. 
So our third point is Paul is continually praying for them in a positive way. So let's actually go now to 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, and we'll read the first couple verses. It says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of, Thessal- to the, church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, consistently mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we see when Paul opens up the letter, it's addressed from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Well, now we know why it was addressed from Paul, Silas, and Timothy, because they were all there. They all helped the church grow. They were around when the church was being built up, and they all are praying for them. And we see that when Paul is remembering them in prayer, he is remembering three things. This work of faith, this labor of love, and this steadfastness of hope. This is Paul's love and desire for them. And, he, and these are positive things. They can be taken maybe in a negative ways, praying that they, they're, they're faithful and enduring through trials and persecution. But he, in his mind, the way the Scripture is written, they're all positive attributes he's remembering about others in his prayer. When we pray, sometimes we tend to think of ourselves and our concerns, and we thank the Lord uh, for his blessings and for salvation. When we pray for others, we tend to think of you know, their sicknesses and their illnesses. These are all really good things. I'm not, not putting these down. But how often do we pray for other people as they're doing well and encouraging them that we pray that we are thankful for their evidence of faith? We're thankful for their love. We're thankful that they persevere in their patience and they're steadfast. We pray for one another, especially people maybe we don't, really, we don't talk to as much or we, we pray for as much. Find positive things to pray for them, to remember them while you're praying in prayer. So let's go through these points as we see Paul's love for them. So as Paul's praying, he remembers their work of faith. So I want to be clear that this is not uh, faith by works, but work of faith. Salvation is through grace, through Jesus Christ. We all know the scriptures. The kids probably could have quoted it. For by grace are we saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, so no one can boast. So what's work of faith? Work of faith is I'm defining as it's evidence that your faith is real. So how does, how does faith come about? Well, Romans 10.17 tells us, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And this is 100% true for the Thessalonians. Their faith came by hearing Paul's message that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, had to suffer and die. And what they heard was the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Paul writes in his letter to them this, and we also thank God continually because you received the word of God which you heard from us. So they received the word of God which they heard from Paul, Timothy, and Silas. And you accepted it not as human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. They heard the gospel and they accepted it not just as Paul's word is what he's saying as words, but they accepted it by the Holy Spirit as actually the word of God. See, this was the difference between those who accepted it and the Jewish leaders who were causing problems and who rejected Paul's message. 
It's interesting how people can hear the same words and some people accept it as truth and as God's word and other people are too concerned about themselves and reject it. So this is how their faith was developed. But we're talking about work of faith, something tangible that displays their faith. So in verse 9 of chapter 1, Paul writes that they turn from idols to serve the living God. Very tangible. As new believers, this is almost like the first step when we come to know Jesus Christ as Savior, we shed the old self. We shed the worldly desires. We shed the passion desires we have for this world. And that's what the Thessalonians are doing. And that's what Paul is remembering in prayer and he's thankful for, is that there's evidence to their faith. Paul remembers this continually mentioning in his prayers. So work of faith. So next is labor, labor of love. So as a father, it's very encouraging when my children simply listen because they love me. They just listen because. Because they just want to obey. They don't do it begrudgingly. <sighs> they don't do it out of obligation. They don't try to negotiate. Well, if I, uh, if I do this, can I have a Lego? They just do it because they know they should. Better yet, it's encouraging when they listen when you're not around to see them or watch them, okay? You hear good reports uh, from maybe their teacher, maybe Sunday school teachers. You hear good reports uh, from other parents that they're listening and obeying. They're following what you've taught them and how to conduct themselves. Or they come home and tell you, hey, so-and-so told me to do this and I didn't do it because it was wrong. Paul was anxious for Timothy to come back and to hear the report. Paul wanted to know how they were doing. And what Paul's report said was that they had good faith and love. That this love was genuine. It had evidence to it. In verse 8 of the chapter, Paul writes this, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Their love for the Lord, their labor of love, was examples to the areas around them. And 1 John 3.18 tells us, Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. The Thessalonians didn't sit around in a church and say, well, let's, how can we love? Let's talk about how we love. They actually put it into action. And this action, because their love was genuine, went forth and was an example to those around them. They were leading by example. And I don't even think they were trying to lead by example. That's one of the qualities of leading by example. You just do what you're supposed to do and others see. So their love was genuine and they led by example. Steadfastness of hope. So if you recall, as we went and did some background in the story, that the Thessalonian believers were being persecuted right from the get-go. The Jewish leaders wanted to squash the gospel because it was, uh, was going against their lives and how they wanted to live, um, stealing their thunder. But the Thessalonians persevered. They were unlike the seed that fell on the thorny ground that was choked out by the cares of this world. They persevered through these trials. That's what Timothy reported. In fact, in verse 6 of uh, chapter 1, as we're looking at it, it says this, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with 
the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And no, I didn't read the verse twice. It's two different verses. Paul mentions twice how the Thessalonians are an example to the areas around them. So let's look at this now. Let's take a step back. So we see that Paul led by example, single person, in love, Paul led by example. And then Jason and a few others followed Paul's example and the Lord's example. Okay, And then the Thessalonian church now led by example. And now they're example to the whole region of Macedonia and Achaia. See, when you're an example, especially in love, the result is compounding. It's exponential. It goes forth. And so how did Paul accomplish this? What example did he do? What example? And I actually think I missed the slide. Sorry. So what did Paul do? What did uh, Paul's example, how did he mentor? How did he go about um, building this relationship with the Thessalonians? You know, it's not that hard to go out and just mentor someone, just to want to love them because. So Paul gives us two examples in his relationship, how he mentored them. His first example, he says, is how a mother takes care as, as a mother to a child or to a baby. See, babies need constant care and attention. They can't survive on their own. Most babies need individual attention. Not every baby's the same. My two kids weren't. I'm sure you'll find that in your life as well. You know, babies, you have to feed them. All right? And they can't feed themselves. Maybe you start with a bottle. Maybe as they grow a little older, um, they get some solid foods. Right? But it can't be too big of foods. You have to cut up nice and small. For the first year of your life, you're always making sure they're not shoving it all in their mouth because they don't eat like this. They eat like this. It's all over their face and on the, the ground. You know, make sure they don't choke. You have to take care of them in an individual way. You have to change their diapers. Okay? You have to wipe them. These are things that kids can't do on their own. And baby Christians are the same way. They need personal care. They need attention. And one of the things as a parent, especially when the kids are younger, they may be sweet, they may, be, they may cuddle you, they may show you love by coming up and resting their head on you. But it's a very one-sided relationship. You give a lot more into it than you get, you get out. You spend more time caring for them than they're caring for you. And that's the example that Paul gives when mentoring new believers. But Paul's example doesn't stop there. He doesn't say, you have the word of God, now you're good, you, know, you now have faith, and I see some evidence of this faith, we're done. The second example that Paul gives is a father encouraging his child to walk in a way worthy of God. See, he's not teaching him how to walk anymore, the child already knows how to walk. But he's teaching maybe where to walk, what to stay away from, to stay on the straight and narrow path. He's looking to see in how he walks and how he conducts himself is his decisions and how he's living an example to the things that he's been taught and learned. Does he understand truth? Does he make good decisions? And you don't just take a child who knows how to walk and as you encourage them, maybe as they become teenagers and young adults, and just say, okay, you're good, have at it on your own. They still need encouragement. They still need love. They still need mentoring. They're not babies anymore, but we all need these things. We all need to be encouraged, even as full-grown adults. 
as believers for many years. We need to be encouraged in what we're doing well. And this is Paul's example, okay? It's interesting, I was shared this morning about um, Abraham and, and God's example with him. As God gives Abraham a promise, and Abraham needs a little more encouragement. Yeah, I understand you're telling me these things, but I need a little more. And sometimes that's the case. Sometimes, as our children get older, and I have discussions with my, my older son, you tell him something, he's like, yeah, his phrase is, I don't get it, right? And it's fine. You have to take this compassionate, tender, caring approach, as Paul does. We're looking at Paul's heart, not only as he has, sets an example, but that he loves the Thessalonians, and he's patient with them. He's enduring with them. And so this is how we are to be with one another, not just as new believers, but as we grow and mature. So many years ago, many years, nine years ago, um, maybe different a uh, few years, I was at a Bible study, and um, I met this new believer who had a, a rough background. For the sake of argument, we're just going to call him Joe. And um, Joe started coming to the Bible study displaying some good um, uh, qualities, claiming he was saved. And uh, another brother and I were in, would encourage him as these times we were seeing some good positive things. And over time, he fell back into um, his old ways of living and, in fact, in fact got arrested and was, was put in prison. And so this other brother and I would sometimes visit him in prison. Um, we would write him letters. And um, the letters start out very basic. We wanted to know how he was doing spiritually. Was he really saved? When I say starting out, I mean, I think we wrote him letters and visited him for a couple of years, two, three years. And the first year was basically just trying to understand where he was. Are you really saved? How are you doing? You make these claims in a letter, and I come see you once in a while in prison. But, you know, trying to understand, do you really believe these things? Is there, is there a work of faith? And so you have to be patient, as Paul's patient. Treat them as, say, as a child, but tender care and compassion. And as he started, maybe I think it was a year, year and a half of doing this, he started saying, yeah, I started a Bible study in prison and started responding to questions and how he was doing of all these positive ways. And so now it was time to now take a step further and to encourage him as, a, as Paul did as a father to an older child or son and to ask him hard questions. Is there anyone who in this process you wrong that you need to make right? How should you walk? Don't just walk and do these things, but how? And so it's a process. It's not something that's just going to happen overnight, um, but it's an effort. And this is Paul cares about him. Paul was in it for the long run, long haul. He ran the race well. And at the end, the Thessalonian believers proved they could stand on their own because Paul put forth the effort. So what does that mean, mean for us this morning? So in conclusion, let's follow Paul's example. Let's follow the Thessalonians' example. Let us do it in love. That's how it works. Let us do it in love. And sometimes it's not the easiest just to love everybody. It's difficult, but we can work on it. Because if we have a hard time loving people, we're going to have a hard time mentoring and encouraging people. So what was Paul's example? Well, he put others' needs before himself, especially in times of trial. 
definitely is true with new believers. When you mentor new believers, they don't always get it right away. They have a very baby-like faith. When we mentor new believers, it should be as Paul was, as a mother's relationship with as a child. Second, we can encourage one another. Okay, encourage one another before they stumble, right? Reach out to the kids in college, right? Reach out to someone you haven't, maybe haven't seen in a bit. You see people here working and they're serving the Lord. Encourage them. Build them up as a father encourages his son. And let's pray for one another continually in a positive way, remembering each other in our prayers. Let's, be, let's lead by example, that others may see our example and lead by example, and then it's compounding. So that we at Terra Road may be like the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians were an example, just not in Thessalonica, but to the whole region. So that's why I leave you this morning, is that let us lead by example and encourage one another so that we can lead by example, and then it can grow. If someone else sees our example, and it can grow and grow. Let's, uh, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us the perfect example through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word, and we pray that we can continue to encourage one another, that we can encourage and look at uh, new believers who need more encouragement, that we would put forth the love and the effort as Paul has shown us, that we continue to encourage one another as uh, mature believers in the Lord. We all need to be loved, to be mentored, to be cared for, Lord. And we pray that we would build each other up in you and that we would be an example uh, to the areas around us here. We pray for this time now as uh, people go out and spread, hand out the flyers, that you bless them, that... Uh, We go out and hand out flyers during the parade, and we uh, work with VBS and with the kids, that you make it a blessing to you, that people will come to you as Savior, and that we can encourage these little children as they grow in the Lord. In your name, amen.